Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this wild IL writing cast. I am very privileged to have with me a new guest on the podcast. Uh, Erwin, is it uh, Blackthorn? Did I have that right? Blackthorn, yes. Uh, awesome, Erwin. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about objectivity, objectivity of prose, both in terms of content and in composition. And we'll get into what those means here in a moment. But first, before we begin, Erwin, would you let our guests know a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Erwin. I'm a writer and also trying to be an editor, but mostly trying to be like an aesthetic enthusiast where I try to let people know how to write better. And um, you can find most of my writings about writing on my subreddit rtdlh and um it's a very small one not very big but i write a lot about it and that's about it excellent before we continue friends i want to adjust my settings on my microphone realize i had it on the wrong setting that's okay but before we go further i actually want to uh Show some of my stuff too. So those of you familiar with the podcast, you know where I'm going to send you, wildislet.com, where I do much of the same thing as Irwin. Um, you can find my fiction there as well as my editing service, which I'm also kind of you know, thinking of rebranding almost as a bit of education, particularly the subscription service where I do both line edits and uh, a coaching session each month for a variable payment and variable amount so I can give you what I learned in grad school and you don't have to go into tremendous amounts of debt and deal with uh, pretentious prats because you will have to deal with that, unfortunately. Uh, also, while you're there, check out the Kickstarter campaign. This uh, It should still be, yeah, it'll be going for a couple weeks while when this podcast comes out. It is for funding book covers. I've got a series of really novelling stories I want to publish. I need covers for them. I'm broke. So you can help us out there if you would be so kind. And where else would I send you? Nowhere else. Check out the stories and excerpts. And oh, I just did a uh, an analysis on the Barbie movies, a pop culture analysis from Wild Owl Literature. Uh, you'll get more of those in the future. Hope you guys like it. Uh, I just I won't spoil it. Just go check it out and see what I think. Let's get into the actual topic of today now that we're done shilling. So objectivity in terms of quality, in terms of prose um and i mentioned in terms of content as well as composition uh for those of you out there listening uh we'll really need to define some terms and i think the very first thing that we should define surprisingly so is prose uh because i found even among authors people don't really know as simple as that concept is people don't really know what we're, we're talking about so i can either take that one or Erwin, do you want to do prose for us <clears throat> Um, I guess I'll say what my ignorant position on prose is first, and then you just correct me as I go along. <laughs> go right ahead. Uh, so I think that prose is more than syntax. It's also syntax plus tone. But do you think that there's a better way to explain it? I I mean, I don't know about better. Uh, my understanding of prose as a definition is really, it, it's a word that only exists because we have poetry. So you are right to, to bring up the fact that there are rules of syntax. Um, and, you know, when we start talking about style or composition, we're going to start talking about how that affects the tone, most certainly. So I think both those elements are there. We can talk about elements of grammar, but really prose is writing within a set of grammatical and I don't know how to uh, make 
an adjective out of the word syntax, but rules of syntax and rules of grammar. But that was my understanding of really what prose is, as opposed to writing in, in terms of lines and meter, which would make poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for those yeah. of you out there who did, yeah, if you didn't know, that's as simple as it is. So when we use the word prose, we're really just talking about anything that's actually written out. We're not talking about poems, which don't have to obey uh, a lot of the, the rules and, uh, say, conventions of the language that you're writing in. So that's the least interesting bit here. Um, I think what's more interesting, much more interesting, is objective, right? What does objective mean as opposed to subjective? Um, and then we need to, after digging into that, we can get into the topics at hand, which is like, what the hell do we mean when we talk about content in the work of fiction? And what do we mean when we talk about composition? So um, I'll throw this one back at you, Erwin. So objectivity versus subjectivity like what the hell are we talking about here okay so objectivity is a word that has two definitions when it comes to something like philosophy the first definition is where there's an object and a subject the object is something that has something done to it and the subject is a thing that's doing it so when you want to say um i don't know the boy play with the ball the boy is a subject and the ball is the object that's the first one. And the second one is where there's an outer and an inner. So the objective one is something that's outside as a source. And then the subjective one is one that's inside as a source. So if you want to say there's an idea of anything, like let's say I got an idea for a story. Objectively, the idea came from outside of me. But then subjectively, it came from inside of me. Does that make sense? so far yeah the way that i typically frame those um it's the difference between uh let's say in terms of the objects we're referring to that which is and our subjectivity or subjective is in reference to our experience of the thing right which relates back to your other Mm -hmm. definitions of object and subject actually right because in the in terms of like a sentence the subject is that which acts Now, sometimes we give subjectivity in a sentence to an inanimate object the way that we use language. But when we do that, we always recognize those are figures of speech. They are deviations from literal meanings. Um, And by the way, you listeners out there, if you start to really pick at particularly English is is very, I don't want to say guilty of this because I actually like it about English, but uh, you start picking away at English or any language much of what we say is not literal. Much of it is figurative. And if you think about what that means, you can end up in some really sticky situations. But we won't get into that. We'll we'll, we'll focus more on the idea of subjects and objects, right? So the thing acted upon is not the thing that has the experience. It is the object separate from the experience itself. Really, uh, I like to couch this in Kantian terms, even though Kant was an evil wizard in my estimation. Uh, and we can talk <laughs> about why that is later. We can talk about why that is later. Um, but, sure. but yeah, so the Kantian terms would be like the noumenal and the phenomenal, or like the like uh, noumena and phenomena. So the noumenal is, let's say, the universe as it really exists. Uh, aside from how we think, feel, see, experience it, whereas the phenomenon 
is is our our experience of it that which is occurring internally you can think of it like how your eyes work right you don't see a table you see light reflected off the object that we call a table and in fact you don't even really see the object table because if you think about what a table you know if you think about the table and the air surrounding the table there's bits of the table atoms of the table coming off and bits of the air falling onto the table to a degree that the let's say category table is a kind of phenomenological reference point right we say table because we interact with the thing that we call a table and this this is going to bring us into Aristotle really, really fast. I don't want to ramble on and on and on. But the idea is there is an object there. The object is the what we call a table. Our name for the object is actually um, a bit of subjectivity in reference to our experience and how we interact with it. There's a claim yeah. about the objective reality, but there is not um, knowledge of the numeral because that would be called gnosis with a g which will come up eventually but the the short and long of it is the objective is that is which is it is that which transcends your experience of it right it's like if you don't uh, I, I used to give this example and then we'll move on to actually talking about fiction here but the example i used to give which i i I'd say this is the most like american way of thinking about it ever is it doesn't really matter if you don't hear or see the bullet leaving the gun, if it hits you in the head, your head still, well, it depends how big the gun is. If you, if it's a Smith and Wesson model 29, if you get hit in the head, you <laughs> your head, your head still explodes. Right. So, uh, so that's when I say objective, that's what I mean. Right. It's like that, which happens. Okay. So now we have to ask, what does it mean to say that quality where something is good or something is bad can be objective or whether or not we are or whether or not the concept of quality would be merely an element of experience that does not exist outside of experience right so when we're talking about quality so i guess we have another definition we have to dig out here is like what is what is good quality and what is bad quality or what makes something good as a thing and what makes it bad as a thing what do you think okay um <clears throat> let's see quality because for quality it has to be something that not just an individual human is attracted to but i would say like like the the, the specific human's body is attracted to because our mind is what's controlling the subjectivity if we assume like let's just say like for for clarity the mind is like strictly to one person like whatever you're thinking whatever you are um feeling whatever you like desire that's only for you right there nothing else is outside of that i mean sorry uh nothing else is feeling the same thing so if we want to say that's subjectivity then the objective would be what we react to without even thinking about it in the same way as we feel awe or we feel like crying we feel like uh, almost like disgusted by some kind of stimuli. And it's something that all humans feel, or at least all normal humans feel, because the bodies share something that's normal, like normalized. So let's say we see a snake. Without even thinking, we're usually afraid of the snake. 
oh, and this is a primitive thing that we gain from evolution. Through evolution, we gain things that we fear. We gain things that we really are attracted to. We see this as beautiful. This is part of aesthetics because aesthetics is the philosophy of beauty. And you have to think about what beauty is in the first place to start thinking about that one. And it's because beauty is that which we're almost attracted to in a way we can't even control. And this is what Freud also talks about in his psychoanalysis, where we'll be completely attracted to something that even destroys us, which is uh, also what the fiction genre of noir goes over. Because when you have a femme fatale, that is a woman that's there to destroy the protagonist. She's not there to be the love interest that's going to have a happily ever after. It's the exact opposite. And Freud knew about that one because this is also how Lilith in biblical mythology, she was the thing that kind of attracted Adam away from Eve. And she's also related the Lilith is also related to snakes. And snakes are related to chaos and all this other stuff that you probably hear from someone like uh, Jordan Peterson or even Jung. And so there's I've got the subject. Uh no. <laughs> So uh, I, I think, well, the subject for the, the whole podcast is objective quality of prose, but the particular quality, question was, yeah, quality. Okay, so objective, objective quality would be both that which we primitively, without even thinking, would react to. And this is very basic. This is something that companies are doing all the time. You'll see something that is very well received in media, like movies. Uh, some of the top movies are things that we say, hey, this is really stupid. But then we also have to think, why do people even want to react to that and watch it in the first place? It's almost like there is an addiction there. And maybe even addiction can be objective, too, because it's something that is reacting to our chemicals in our brain rather than our subjective ability to comprehend. Mm, okay, so this actually fits in quite well with a number of other podcasts that I've had a chance to have. So it sounds to me, and you tell me what you, how this fits into what you've just told me. We're looking at for something that is a human, specifically human universal. It doesn't have to be universe mm -hmm. universal just because we're human. We care about human things, right? Because we're not some other yes. species. So, okay. Well, when we say a human universal, I think we are making direct reference and you did make direct reference to uh, a kind of biological essence, right? Because humans are essentially biological creatures. Um, you kind of know that because if you obliterate all the biology, you don't have any human left. Um, so you would say that part of our essence is biological. Um, and when I say the word essence, what I'm, I'm saying there, it is um, that's what touches down onto the uh, objective, right? There is something there that is uh you know does not care about the subjectivity right it is that is which it is regardless of how you think or feel about it right so um for those of you who've who've read my uh my barbie analysis you'll know i make a kind of similar argument here but um to to steal a line not a line but a, a subject matter from mr walsh matt walsh here uh mm -hmm. You know, if if there is in fact, let's say, such a thing as a biological essential nature, and you have something like a woman, a woman is a woman, which will have particular traits that are, let's say, 
it doesn't matter how you think or feel it will it will have a particular to get into aristotle like i mentioned before um it's gonna have a particular form and be of a particular substance and have a particular end or uh, the greek word is telos i'm probably pronouncing it terribly um i usually like to translate telos a lot of times people call it uh purpose but the problem with the word when i use the word purpose is that purpose has a number of meanings, some of which are in reference to subjectivity. So I, I stray away from that because people get caught on words and then they can't think anymore and they shut down like robots. And so yeah. what I, I like to use the word, <laughs> yeah, they do, right? So I like to use the word function because there's a lot of over, there is a lot of overlap for a purpose and function, but a thing can have a function regardless of a subject to know about its function. Aristotle uses uh, essentially the example of an acorn and an oak tree. So the telos of an acorn is to become an oak tree because the acorn falls, a bunch of them perhaps perish, but the thing, the point of the acorn is it falls into the ground, it uh, you know becomes fertile and it grows and it becomes the oak tree eventually. So you can see that regardless of a subject, things do things, right? They serve out a particular function. And in the case of humans, we have biological functions. You mentioned Freud and, and Jun. I'm very familiar with Jun, and it sounded to me like what you were talking about essentially are the archetypes, because the archetypes are fundamentally human universal instincts that, that have existed across time and culture um, and actually exist transcendent to culture. Um, how how well how, how well the uh, collective unconsciousness yeah exactly now uh i assume you're pretty familiar with you then um i wouldn't say i'm like a master or anything but i I recognize enough if like you start talking about union stuff i'll be able to catch on and play along you know <laughs> um, okay sometimes terms just go by me and i i just I, i'm one of those people that i'm really terrible with names of things so i'll recognize the the description of it but i just I, I won't remember the name of it so you have to like uh give me the the name sometimes okay so uh we won't then dive bomb straight into you and we'll 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 pull you in as as it becomes relevant no problem uh we will but we i think we should get into fiction before all our uh people who come here to listen about fiction and writing uh check out so we we have the idea right. of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We have the idea about function, right? Though, so now if we think about writing in terms of objective quality, so objective quality is a human universal. It means that it applies to humans, generally speaking, mm -hmm. because uh, like Aristotle would say something like um, what we're dealing with is an inexact science, right? Because biology, unlike something like chemistry, where chemistry, you can get the exact, precise, same results every single time. Um, same thing with physics. That's not true with biology. Like, you can breed animals, and there's this weird, uh, it's not exactly randomness, but it might as well be for us, random element to how uh, genes um, shuffle together, if you will, and biology propagates itself and how it adapts to its environment. So it's fuzzy like medicine is fuzzy, right? Like some medicines work for certain people and you give them to somebody else and it kills them. Uh, you know, I really like peanut butter. I give peanut butter to someone who's allergic to peanuts and they die, right? Does that yeah, mean so peanut butter? Objectively, yeah. they will die from the peanut butter. It's not like they can subjectively determine I'm going to eat peanut butter and survive. The body is going to say, no, we're going to die here. We're allergic, yeah, and then we, and we could say that 
we wouldn't say that peanuts are a uh, natural poison for humans. We would say there are some humans who have an aberration in their like biology that makes peanuts the poison. But peanuts themselves, yeah. it, it would be it would be foolish to consider them poisonous because then all of a sudden, anytime anyone could have a you know anaphylactic reaction to something, which could be a, just about anything, then therefore everything is poison. Then the whole system of categorization falls apart. So why why am I saying all that? Well, um, I think that a work of fiction does in fact serve a purpose and that purpose has an effect like you mentioned on the biology of the human being um, like medicine does so not everyone is going to be affected but essentially uh, everyone regardless of not everyone I would say regardless of time or place if a reader has the proper context and understands the language. So like, obviously if something's in French and you can't read French, then you can't read it. So that, you know, so you I'm have to be able to under to be, uh, digestible to relate it to medicine and food. Yeah. Right. Like it, you have, to, it has mm -hmm. to be administrable, like for the fiction to get into you, you have to know the language. And I think you also have to know a little bit of the context that the language assumes that you'll know, right? Like the language assumes you'll know the words. If there are words in there that, you know, if you read an archaic book from like 200 years ago, if you read like Milton, for instance, uh, you're going to run into words that had different meanings. Like if I say the word artificial now, that has different contextual meanings than it did um, a couple hundred years ago. 200 years ago, the yeah. word artificial has much more positive connotations than it does now because it was in reference to that which was artistic, right? Um, this is an easy example. So so yeah, I can actually let you talk and not have me ramble on and on and on. I apologize. Uh, no, I like it. You let me uh, rearrange my thoughts because, you know, <laughs> I get kind of hectic. No, no, it's, it, you're doing great, man. Um, yeah, so we've got this idea that you read the work of fiction, and it's going to affect you. Now, I've come to the conclusion uh, that I think our conception of particular literary, literary elements should be not changed, because I don't want to try and reinvent the wheel here, but constrained, one of which is genre. Because I think genre as a literary concept is really sloppy. Like it, it, you, you try to describe a work in a genre, and what you find in using the conventional terms is you have to invent like a million sub sub genre categories in order to communicate mm. to somebody what you mean which means the words aren't working because the words are supposed to communicate to people and if you have to add 20 qualifiers it's like that's that's not good so i think You're doing something wrong there well yeah and so what i think is if we constrain the concept of genre to telos like i mentioned before function what does that particular um, work due to the biology of the human being, we can actually take things that are already considered genres and so we don't have to come up with anything new, which is good because it means that we can t make reference to, let's say, um, what would you say, discovered truths, things that you know we had figured out via kind of tradition over time. And you might say something like, the telos of a thriller is to trigger the uh, fight 
part of the fight or flight response. Horror is the flight, right? You might say erotica mm. is like arousal, right? That's a base physiological reaction. Some works are going to inspire a sense of awe. I can't remember the word I came up for that. I picked out, I think it was uh, metaphysical or something like that, uh, or perhaps spiritual works or some, some you know, they, they've got a couple of different influential, um, something like inspirational, yeah. Yeah, you might say that, um, what was it? There was, oh, um, so you've got like tragedy and, and comedy even. Those play upon the emotions, right? So the uh, euphoric, positive, dopaminergic response would be um, something that would be comic versus something that's tragic, uh, let's say, plays upon feelings of sorrow. And those are, again, very basic emotions. Um mm-hmm. You can have so, adventure, and that uh, that attaches itself to excitement and uh, even purpose. Like you can feel like, oh, now I had to go on an adventure myself because life is an adventure. Yeah, I actually had a particular um, in terms of well, I think it was I, I attribute those to plot, cause, and we can get into that if if we'd like, because I think there's plot types as opposed to plot structures. I actually think all plot mm-hmm. has shares one structure, but the elements that fill the structure vary and you do have adventure stories and you have coming of age or hero's journey stories etc you know you have like romance stories that are fixated around a relationship but to focus just a moment on genre uh as telos well if we we make or if we constrain i like the word constrain here genre categories to how they affect the biology of the human beings not perfectly universally, but universally, like medicine universally, then I think we could say, okay, well, you could say that certain prose succeeds at fulfilling the end in a to a certain degree. So if a novel is a horror novel and it successfully instills a feeling of dread and fear and uh, that particular type of tension in most readers, then you would say, well, as a horror novel, some at least something about it is good because it's doing the work of a it, it's doing the work of a horror novel. It's fulfilling the end of a horror novel well. What do you think of that? I'm sorry, can you repeat that last part? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so if a particular kind of novel is having the effect that we might describe using our constrained idea of genre, right? So it's like. Mm-hmm. If you have a horror novel, if it makes most readers feel afraid, then that is, you could say, as a horror novel, it is a good horror novel. Or if it's like, you know, someone's reading some, uh, I don't know, cheap erotica, and they're uh, they're getting hot and bothered as they're reading. Like, that was that good erotica. Well, yeah, and, and to the degree to which it does that well, it's better or worse, right? If a tragedy does indeed, um, let's say, give one... Well, tragedy is more complex because that that touches on a complex human emotion. I would say something like if tragedy gives the reader a strong feeling of catharsis through through the negative experience of the tragedy, right? Because that yeah, we could yeah we could like get into it. Like somebody in the story dies, and you're like, oh no, they died. Like you actually feel like sympathy and feelings for that person because now you saw the end result of their tragedy. Like yeah, it's like is that an objective? tragedy right there yeah and we would say the degree to which it, that's successful with most 
we're going to have to get into it with most people because I think there's there's another uh, there's a Nietzschean concept that'll come up in a little bit. But but yeah, that's my idea. So what do you think? Does that does that hold water to you? Yeah, because um, but it, it it holds it because up to a degree, uh, something like horror is not necessarily tied to fear or scary or something like um, even spooky or startled. Right now, just to complain about something real quick, right now we have a lot of horror stories and even movies that are trying to just startle people rather than actually create horror. So there'll be like a loud sound and then people are like, oh no, a loud sound. You know, they get startled like a cat when they jump up from a loud sound. But did that actually cause a horror effect in you? No, obviously not. That's just something that was loud. So uh, objectively, we can say that the body reacted to that startling but we cannot say it reacted to horror itself. Horror is more like uh, something happens in the story where insanity is a lot more logical than the actual thing happening in the story. So let's say there is a, I don't know, somebody encounters Dracula. That's a good horror story because why the hell would Dracula make sense in a logical world? It's a supernatural phenomena, right? So you feel horror and you feel dread and you feel like the world's completely changing around you. You feel like you're going insane or better yet insanity is a better option. And Edgar Allan Poe did that very well too, with his dark romance. So you'll have horror things like that. And the insanity part, I think really plays into the objectivity because humans are for the most part, rational actors. And we don't really care if somebody says something insane because it doesn't really help us in our normal logical world for things to function we need some kind of logic right the a has to equal a so a equals b we're like i just don't care doesn't make sense to me i might as well be insane right yeah so, so okay that, this go ahead you gone okay <laughs> so objectivity does kind of require logic in the genre and due to deconstruction constantly thanks to postmodernism we have a lot of irrationality in genres because people are trying to blend genres together they're trying to blur the lines between like what is fantasy versus real life what is and and not just real life but like realistic fiction because both of these are false events they didn't actually happen um you can even say that some people are trying to say action movies from Arnold schwarzenegger are the same thing as like lord of the rings because it's just as likely for somebody to survive an explosion than it is to have a dragon. You know, they'll try to blur the lines between those two things. So with that obfuscation, we do get confused as a populace. Like, people are really confused right now. So objectivity can also affect that confusion. But I wouldn't say that's a good one. I would say that that is part of the addiction side, which we're stuck in right now. Um, people are trapped in this idea that we need to both be original and also familiar. And then that creates a lot of mundane genres. Like if you look at the things that are very popular now, what are they? Um, Explosion, the movie. And then you'll have like some random attachment to Twilight for the women specifically. And then you'll have something like a kid's show that's a sequel of another kid's movie. <clears throat> and it's being, it's being a, viewed by adults subjectively we can say people are addicted to this nostalgia they're addicted to the sex stuff they're addicted to this um like dopamine impulse from explosions 
but we can't call that good objectivity because it doesn't actually solve anything. There is no function. The function is just to cause an addiction. <clears throat> and I lost the subject again. What was it? <laughs> and I actually, I, I'd like to, to jump in here shortly. So I mentioned that concept decadent taste. And um, this is exactly what you're identifying. So um, there's this, I, I know you've probably heard the term before, but depending on who says it, it means different things. The, the phrase is the master-slave dialectic. Are you familiar with that at all? I know about dialectic, but I don't remember the master-slave one. So the master-slave dialectic, I think Rousseau is the one who kind of started doing this, but after he, oh, okay. I don't know if he started it or not, but other people took it up. And Nietzsche talked a lot about it. And so for Nietzsche, you had essentially uh, the the master is someone who is able to, to a sufficient degree, actualize his world or world, his will in the world, right? So he has mm -hmm. desires that he can achieve. And because he has desires that he can achieve, now there's a lot of ways to set that up, right? You can reconfigure your desires to be achievable and then achieve them. That's like the Jordan Peterson route. Um, however you manage to, to do it, that means you look at the world and you look at it and you say, well, the world is good because it's a place where I achieve my desires and I can embrace it thereby. And the slave is necessarily the person who cannot act out his own will. He is a slave both to his own passions, but then also, in a sense, to the world and to other people because he, is, he doesn't act according to his will. He acts according to whatever the uh, the whims or, uh, let's say, fickle caprices of nature or whatever. But it's not according to his will. That's what makes him a slave as opposed to a master. Now, the slave looks at the world and views it as a terrible place because it is a place that oppresses him. It is a place that always holds him down. And the slave seeks, um, let's say, forms of opiate, whether, and, and for Nietzsche, that would have been in Germany, wheat and beer basically uh because mm -hmm. that was what they that was you know the problems that they had but you know you could if you're here in west virginia it's heroin um or the slave seeks revenge particularly against the master because and anything the master likes anything the master pursues um so let's talk about the the opiates for a second right for the for the okay. slave because you you notice that okay explosion the movie that appeals very much to the slave because the slave needs something quick and cheap and easy and mindless. to placate yeah and mindless to placate and to to numb whereas the master might go and uh the example i might use is you know he might be he's capable of let's say making himself a strong enough reader and building up enough patience. And he reads, say, like The Shadows Over Innsmouth. And The Shadows Over Innsmouth, if you've never read it out there, listeners, it's kind of boring in the first big chunk. But the fact that it's boring means that when you get to the scene when the narrator is staying in this hotel room and it's dark and he notices that the lock has been removed from his door and he hears a noise outside his doorway and he's not exactly sure 
if someone is about to break into his room. But he just got done talking to a drunk madman who talked about strange beings uh, from like, you know, from another world and these cults. And you're like, oh, oh, damn. And you get this moment of dread that you can only get if you possess the the patience or um, if you if you want to be able to enjoy, let's say, really old literature. You have to be able to understand figurative language to a high degree. Like a lot of people, we go read Shakespeare. People think that the problem is it's written in very high diction. No, it's not actually. Um, the problem is, and I had to teach this when I taught university students, is that everything is is laid out in simile and metaphor. That's like really what makes it difficult. And if you can't read similes and metaphors, you can't enjoy Shakespeare. And so you don't go for Shakespeare. Instead, what you'll go for is uh, you know, re uh, reboot like blunt and, and literal. Um, yeah, or and even literal can be okay, right? Like I'm a big fan of Cormac McCarthy. Um, now he does use a lot of figurative language, but he's also very discursion heavy. But he's also kind of a almost like a poet. But I'm 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 going on a tangent now. Uh, what I wanted to say, I was going to add in that, um, uh, in, in the old days, we used to have a lot more metaphorical and simile kind of, uh, speaking because in the old days we used to speak more about, uh, the mind and the spirit than the body. Now, after the enlightenment, we started to go more scientific. We started to have public schools go more into that, like scientific way of speaking. And that's very, that dry, brittle, like, like, uh, how do you say, like, a like 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 sterilized environment where you can't have anything flowery and then writing started to copy that because people were going to college and they were learning about that that became like more of a cultural thing for now and that it's like how people say oh kids these days don't know what cursive is they don't know how to draw it or they don't know how to write it yeah because cursive was a way that people had to do in the old days and then now we're just in a different culture and uh, maybe flowery prose isn't an objective thing maybe sterile prose isn't either but there is something that's beyond that that we can uh, easily see in a more primitive way in the unconscious way and in order to get that you just have to get the message across to the person so maybe we can say that objectively the person who's more used to science will like that sterile way and then the person who's more used to that uh, mental and spiritual way they will like the flowery prose more Perhaps, but now we've slipped into we we've slipped into a bit of subjectivity, have we not? I would say it's more of a because there, there's a way that that society can change someone's biology through familiarity. Because uh, just for an example, I was watching this thing about uh, the brain and everything, and they said something that really fascinated me. It was about how rats they were shocked. Every time they smelled almonds. And then after just one generation, the new rat, the, the, the new rats, they had more uh, cells in their nose to smell almonds because they felt there was like an actual shock to it. So there's a way that in only one or two generations, people can change biologically to a different stimuli. I mean, that's definitely true. I know. Um... My ability to resist capsin, or I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, it's what makes spicy things spicy, has gone through mm-hmm. the roof to the point. It's kind of annoying. Like when I make an omelet in the morning, I have to put 
like a either one giant or two smaller jalapenos and then in like equal amount in terms of weight of habaneros because i like to taste the jalapenos that's why i bother with those but like when you have to keep throwing in habaneros and then like you basically like smoke your fiance out of the room because i don't know if you've <laughs> pan, pan well we, what happens is you put them in the pan and then they release like basically poison into the air because they're yeah, yeah. so spicy no, but yeah problem. it but it's the adaptation right so it's an adaptation yeah. to environment and biologically yeah. we do that objectively we can the body changes like we're not the same people as we were in the old days i think we were shorter before right uh depends on where you're at but for the most part yeah most people were, <laughs> you know were, what I mean, well though. most people it well if, if you're of the nobility you might have been just as tall but uh yeah most at uh, the average person sh- surely would be more malnourished um so this kind of so the i mentioned that master slave dialectic and when you mentioned that you could be changed and that kind of fits together because you can how your biology is going to respond with change. And that is what keeps it in the objective. So that answers that question. I have here in my notes under the decadent taste thing, though, because why decadent? Like, what about, what is Nietzsche saying there? So Nietzsche would say, okay, your taste can either... When I taste, it means, like, what you prefer, right? So he's saying mm-hmm. your subjectivity, what... what and But we just also said what you prefer is also, in a way, biological. So your subjectivity can, yeah. yeah, So your subjectivity in that sense can uh, influence what you imbibe. What you imbibe can change your biology. That it changes. That changes you in your relationship with, let's say, in this case, prose or story or fiction. Which say fiction is the right word. Which that now touches down on the objective. Nietzsche would say you can have taste that rots you. And you, or you could have a taste that makes you more. And that kind of brings the question, okay, we had the telos of fiction. What is the telos of man? And what is the relationship between the telos or the function or purpose of man and the purpose of fiction? And how do they potentially either serve? How does one potentially serve the other? And or can one essentially act as a poison? if it is, let's say, of the wrong quality. Okay. Uh, so I would say the telos of fiction is to direct the culture of the group experiencing the fiction in order to go one way or the other. If you say we're going to rot each other with this fiction, that's more of an anti-culture. It's a culture that's like self-destructive. It's ready to destroy the human experience because humanity can't really... Uh, you know, reproduce or expand, and we have this destructive anti-culture. Like, culture is there to keep everything together. It's like a, um, how do you say, it's like uh, we're a bunch of jelly beans, and then the culture is like a bag that keeps us all together. And then the bag's opened up, beans are spread out, and then, you know, they get rotten. So the good function would be to have a good culture that would also benefit the humans. And this is something that we get confused right now because <clears throat> so many people are saying, well, I want to do whatever I want. They want the subjectivity. And then what exactly do they want? Sometimes they, <clears throat> sometimes they want to destroy themselves. And that's actually kind of fashionable right now, especially. Self-destruction becomes addictive. 
and we almost need to force people to do things that are better for them. Same way as we had to force our kids to brush their teeth. They don't want to. It's effort. They, but they have to. They want to keep their teeth, and their teeth is useful so that they can, you know, bite down on things. So, I would say that uh, good function in fiction is where we are able to keep our uh, symbolically, like just to make a metaphor, is to symbolically keep our mental teeth. We had to we had to keep ourselves sharp, but not just intelligent. And we don't need to know big words. We need to be mentally sharp to continue humanity. And it's so basic and broad that it feels like, oh, that doesn't mean much. But it means everything to the human, because the second the human stops existing, well, there are no more humans, right? I mean, would yeah. we really decide that we're going to go against human intention of surviving? I, I hope not. <laughs> but that's where a good culture comes in to say, no, we got to survive, but you got to keep going. And you could extend that to say transhumanism is also a good idea, but then I would say that removes the human. So that's another topic. That's more into like <laughs> cyberpunk, cyberpunk stuff. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of transhumanism for that reason you mentioned. I think it is. Mm-hmm. I think transhumanism is fundamentally anti-human. Um, so the, what you touched on, there's a concept for it in philosophy. Uh, it probably does not originate with Aristotle, but that's where I'm familiar with it from, it's a eudaimonia, which roughly translates mm-hmm. to something like, yeah, like you, you're familiar with, yeah, like human flourishing, right? Um, Nietzsche yeah. would say... Objective good. Yeah, it's objectively good. It, well, what Nietzsche would say, and I like Nietzsche's way of thinking about it quite a lot, is um, there is a more fundamental dichotomy that lies beyond what is good and what is evil, hence his famous book, Beyond Good and Evil. Uh, he he basically just if you read his mini autobiography he he actually will just tell you what his books mean and it's kind of annoying it's like you bastard you made me read all this and made it impossible to understand so that the last book in the publishing order it's not the last one but it's pretty close to there actually explains it but he explains <laughs> that what's more fundamental what goes beyond good and evil actually is life affirmation and life denial. Jordan Peterson is the one who quotes Goethe's um, Faust with this all the time. But fundamentally, it's you can say like, yes, you you can uh, to couch it in a Christian context. You could say, yes, you know, I'm going to, I am uh, not particularly religious, by the way. Um, listeners should, will know that, but I use a lot of uh, religious language because I think it's very useful, just like Mr. Peterson or Dr. Peterson should be respectful. But you can look upon the world like God and say, yes, this is good, right? Like, I don't know how many times it happens in Genesis. Or you could be like Mephistopheles and decide all that uh, all that comes to be deserves to perish wretchedly. And that's the most fundamental thing, because if there's a world that must have good and evil in it, does that world, is that world good or is that world bad? And how does that load on to what we were just talking about? Well, that which is eudaimonic, if that's the right way to conjugate that word, is uh, that which enables or ennobles perhaps the, the reader to go and look upon the world and say, yes, it is good, right? It, it facilitates his telos, which means that he functions in the world he can meet his desires and learn and not even learn 
he is more able to embrace and love life rather than be turned against it as this kind of bitter nihilist. Yeah, I agree. So this has been a long way to get to content and composition because now we have to ask, okay, what content and what composition I'll define those shortly. And, and you could, you can tell me what you think. Uh, sure. Yeah. We'll just start with that. I'll define them very shortly. So content real easy content is what the, the, the story is about. So like, the setting, that's content. The plot, that's content. The characters, that's that's all that's content. Um, the theme, that's also content. Uh, now, composite the the, uh, the tone actually, the tone belongs to composition because composition okay. is the how. It's the execution of the content, right? So it's like it, you know when you you can you know we've all read a story and you saw oh that was a really great conceit. But the author couldn't pull it off. And what that means is the author's ideas were good, but their technical skill at taking those and ideas execution. yeah, and rendering them into text in the form of a book might be lacking. Or you might see it the other way around where like, yeah, the book's really well written, but it's not interesting. In that case... The technical skill, the writing craft is good, but the what you know, you could think of this like a sculpture. Like someone could be really, really good at sculpting, but if all they sculpt are really boring things that no one cares to look at, that would be like someone who has high skill in composition, but low skill in content. They don't know what to mm. sculpt, but they know how to sculpt. So then I'll throw the question at you, and we'll start with content. What kind of content then? than is objectively good content or how does one approach the the range of objectively better contents as opposed to objectively worse contents okay so objectively good content would have to be something that humans are seeking and for the most part we are seeking things that are mythological a lot of stuff right now is based off of mythology, even during the modern the modern period, like in the 1800s, 1900s. This was very uh, mythological-based stuff. Uh, we're also looking for things that help us do better in life. It can be something that reacts in the same way as nonfiction, such as Anne Rand's, uh, what was that called, Atlas Shrugged. It may not be totally like a mythological story, but it is some kind of philosophical idea that she developed with her objectivism. And, um, you know, you know, you can say that something like that is objectively good because she got the point across with the story for her particular idea. Even if you don't agree with what it is, she still got the idea across. So it would have to be part of the intention as well as usefulness or function. And then it would also have to be the subject matter that is beneficial. So even if you don't agree with something, you can find some kind of benefit to it by disagreeing because then you kind of strengthen your own mentality of whatever it is it could be. You can say, uh, you know, sorry, this is offensive. You can say something like Mein Kampf is objectively good to be written, but not objectively good to believe, right? Because you can see the evil from it, or you can see something that is at least allowing you to see an evil because you can't really defeat an evil if you don't know what it is or you don't see it. So that reveal enlightens us 
And I think that enlightenment, when it comes to almost like a Jungian term, is um, it's like driving us towards the philosopher's stone. If you look at things like alchemy, the, the, the magnum opus in alchemy is where you have the great work. And the great work has to have the four processes. There's a negrito, where it's this very raw, basic thing. And then there is albedo, where it's this whiteness. And that's like where something's kind of like coagulating into an idea. And then you have Trinitas, where it's starting to lighten up to yellowness. And then that's where the light is starting to come. And then you have Rubido, which is where it turns red. And that's where you have the Philosopher's Stone, the final product. And so the magnum opus isn't the work itself, but it's what it causes in the human. And so every time we have a new enlightenment of anything, it can be as mundane as, I don't know, learning the new job that you have. You at least go forward in the process to get a better job or better job, or you go forward in the process of fiction to have better fiction and better fiction. It's like uh, steps on the stairs. You can, like, each step needs to be part of a magnum opus in order for the whole thing to be a magnum opus. And that's the whole human process towards a better enlightenment. And so I would say the objectively good ones are ones that are good steps on the stairs at the very least, if not the entire stairs themselves, towards enlightenment. Okay, that makes sense because for those who don't know, like uh, enlightenment, Yoon might call that individuation, right? So mm -hmm. the idea that you essentially transform or transmute your your own leaden soul into gold to become more of what you could be, to to take, take a phrase from Peterson, uh, which would help you facil or help facilitate that eudaimonia that we mentioned before, right, to connect this all mm -hmm. back. So there's a certain type of story, an archetypal story that applies to you in your life that contains some type of uh, wisdom. I think wisdom is the right word, right? Because when I think of wisdom, it's, um, it's different than knowledge. Um, it is something that is true, that is in kind of pattern in your instincts, and you can bring it up out from the what we'd say is the collective unconscious where it's unrefined and through let's say the process of the negrito that brings forth the melancholia to to speak in hermetic terms um what you're doing there is recognizing your own insufficiency right your own non-understanding that's why you enter the blackness because you need to dissolve mm -hmm. your prior conceptions of the world and you gain these new conceptions which is sort of like when you approach a book and the book teaches you a new set of rules, a new way of looking at things uh, that's different than your exact set of conditions or your exact set of ideas. Um, and then by allowing your own to dissolve and rebuilding a new, you are able to do something that you could not previously do, or at least you have the potential to grow in that, that direction. And that would be, I guess the, the, the archetypal content in fiction. Um, I did a podcast with my buddy Nate where we talked about uh, it was originally supposed to be escapism in art, but we ended up adding propaganda. And it's relevant to this conversation because what we found out through the course of the conversation was you have a kind of a spectrum or a uh, trinary, I guess you could say. Uh, probably spectrum mm -hmm. is better. So if something is Pretty pure easy. escape, it, yeah. So if something is pure escapism it appeals to the the base instincts 
it acts as a kind of almost like a drug does, right? But it doesn't it doesn't facilitate that eudaimonia. If something is pure propaganda, there's almost so it's almost like the opposite. You've had all of the humanity stripped out of it, and it's a prepackaged idea, usually a political idea, but it, it could be like a prepackaged. What Dostoevsky would say is the church demoted to the level of the state. So like you could have a prepackaged religious idea that's really the same thing as a political idea just being force fed down your throat but when it's art it has exactly what we just talked about where there is a genuine uh, exploration of a problem that you the author in this case of the fiction is actually trying to come to um, a novel solution to what i mean by novel solution which is funny because we're talking about fiction is that uh, this is how I experience it anyway, and you might experience this the same way, is when you're writing, there's a point where it's like, oh, I don't actually know how I'm going to resolve the conflict of this plot. I don't really know how the characters are going to develop. I've put myself in this corner, and now I have to discover the answer that would allow these characters, which is kind of like us if we were in their position, to overcome these particular difficulties. And so by putting forward a genuine answer, um, the theme, or, or a theme, I, I talk about theme as thesis, right? Theme is the moral or the, the claim of truth that is uh, mm-hmm. embedded in the meta narrative symbolically within a work. And that comes out in art, which good art uh, imparts that eudaimonic, let's say, um, or that yeah, the lessons toward eudaimonia to the reader in terms of content, right? So uh, let's get a little bit specific with that, right? So uh, what would what would make? Uh, and you could use examples of just like a work that you read. That'd probably be the easiest way um, of a work that is of objective quality content wise, and that if you hand you handed it to like. I don't know, a teenager, and he said, if you read this, that it would make them more of who they could be. To a teenager? Oh, if you listen. (laughs) You could do it to an adult. You could do it to a kid or an adult, too. I just picked a random group. No, no, no. I'll just just, uh, laugh at it because um, uh, when uh, when you offer anything to a teenager, they really don't know what's going on, but they'll act like they do. And then it feels like later on in life, they'll be like, wait a minute, that thing that I was reading like a long time ago, now I get it. Because that's how I felt too when I was younger. I didn't understand something like Starship Troopers. I, I read it and I'm like, this is boring. This is stupid. I don't know why people made it into a book. And then now that I'm older, I'm like, wait a minute, Starship Troopers is like one of the best books out there. What the hell was I thinking? So a lot of times when we are disagreeable, we're usually disagreeable to unobjective truth when we're teenagers we, we think that we know better that's why when we're teenagers we think that we're unstoppable like you know we're superman we're always jumping off of roofs and doing crazy things but then we get older and we're like okay now i'm in the real world now i had to deal with real things i had to pay bills have a family all these things i have responsibilities and that's the scary part because we weren't really prepared for that as teenagers we had the exact opposite mentality so something that appeals to that realness from real life, you know, you have a family to take care of, you have responsibilities, you have to do things in life, and you also have to make sure that these things can continue as long as possible. 
that would be a story that objectively helps us. And um, if you handed somebody something like Treasure Island, which is an old, uh, I can't remember the German name for this, uh, coming of age tale for boys, that story really does appeal to kids and adults and even teenagers. Because at first you see it and you see pirates. Okay, pirates are cool. There's a black spot. Um, orphan boy, he goes to a ship. There's a cook, uh, Long John Silver. He becomes a villain because he tricked people. You start to feel this at a very surface level when you're younger. But as you get older, you start looking back at it and you're like, okay, this is a story I want to tell my kids because it's a whole story on how a boy has to become a man through the most harshest ways possible. And then he gets a treasure. And then on top of that, the villain gets part of the treasure too. When I read that part, like as an adult, I'm like, holy crap. It, it, it gave like that weird, uh, what do you call it? That eureka moment. It's like, this is why the story is so popular. Because the villain won a little bit too. But now the villain has to live in like this, trying to hide from everybody. Because he's, he's a wanted man now. And, and now everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows that this is the, the villain. And then at the very end, the um the boy i keep forgetting his name um but the the boy he realizes i'm not going to pursue him just because he took a little bit of the gold i already got what i wanted and he also comes back to his mother all of this is something that we can all relate to we can see it as a child as a teenager and as an adult but then when we get older we see it even more as we look further into the the symbolic and the theme so I say that when it comes to something that is objectively good in that way, you have to have a good surface level, and then you also have to have a good uh, inner theme. And you can have a surface level theme too, but then the deeper theme is it has to be more directly towards that objective good. Um, I think that's about all I can say on that part. Yeah, and a treasure I island. Talk more about the composition. Huh. Well, we'll get into that. That in a moment. Yeah, Treasure Island's a I haven't actually had a chance to read Treasure Island, I have to admit. I have a giant stack of classic literature that I only partly gotten through and then I've been reading indies uh lately and trying to get through all of that when they're releasing you guys release books way too often. I can't get through it all. Um but Are if I think of some... make so many books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wish I had infinite time to read them is is really the issue. Um, but yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, but my, my thought that comes to mind is something like, um, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, maybe I'm partial to it being from like West that, Virginia. Yeah. yeah. But like the, you know, to boil it down, you, you give this, you know, you get to see, uh, essentially a, a young teenage kid, like 12, 13 years old. He's able to live on his own in a very realistic way, um, and he can find a new life for himself every 11 miles down the river, and he comes to all kind of moral developments by going on the journey and the adventure of his life, uh, even confronting his own morality and the morality of the society, and he comes to terms with it himself um, through his own you know, cleverness. And it's like, it's like, man, like when you have content like that, um, and then also the high level of verisimilitude, like the unapologetic. Now, Twain was writing a long time ago, so maybe it was a little easier or not. Maybe it was a lot easier to do that back then. But I think any work with an unapologetic, 
apologetic level of versatility where you're just not afraid to uh, represent things in a way that is believable and genuine and sincere, mm -hmm. despite the fact that it's going to offend people or despite the fact that it might be difficult for some people. I think that that's all really important in terms of content. Like you mentioned with Treasure Island, you realize like, yeah, sometimes you're going to have to let the bad guy win a little bit and take your victory and you know walk away and be happy with it and let him ruin his own life because now he's a you know wanted man. And you don't, you know, maybe you don't get your ultimate revenge, but that's life. And that's like the highest victory you could attain, maybe. Um, it's all good content. On the side of composition, I guess I should ask, um, what is your what is your feelings, your notions, your your opinions, your experiences with composition as that, you know, how the writer writes? How important is that, do you think, to the objective quality of a work of fiction? Oh, I would say it's probably the most important at this point. Um, it's actually, <clears throat> you know, not to start like, you know, having shots fired, but indie writers really suck at composition. Even if they're really good at making words put together, they are, they are unable to cause the reader to care. And it's due to the intention that a lot of indie writers are saying, I'm writing for myself. This is for me. It's like, okay, well, how does that affect the reader? Because if it's for you, then where do I, as the reader, come into the equation? And then they'll say, oh, well, it's not just for me. Somebody else might like it. And there's too many maybes in that in that process that's going to say, you know, like, somebody else will like it. I'm ensuring that somebody else will like it. I know that somebody else will like it. You have to have that mentality instead. Because composition is how you get the point across. It's like how you said... A lot of times there's a great concept, amazing concept, probably one of the best. And then the way that it's written is so boring or uninteresting or even disgusting that we don't even want to read it. So how do we get that concept in the reader's head if they don't want to read it? So I would say that composition can allow a terrible concept to be read at, at least. And that's where a lot of stuff comes in from mainstream media. If you ever look at books from now, they're just meandering nonsensical concepts but because the way they're written people are interested they think there's some kind of uh interesting promise at the end of it at the end of it nothing happens okay they read the whole thing you know so uh composition is in an objective way an ability to cause the reader to actually read the work and get through it not just from page one but to page two page three and keep on going keep on going and that's more than just having flowery words or uh, even an interesting concept, because those can only go so far, especially when concept needs to have it needs to have something that people want to actually hang on to. Because sometimes we'll see an interesting concept that we just don't care to put the effort in. It has to be worth the effort put into the reading part. And uh, that's actually a big problem for me because I do love reading. I just don't like to read things from now. Uh it, I was telling um you had him on the, your show before. I was telling Matt Dawson about this, where uh, he has to read The Green Knight. And The Green Knight is a really old story from Arthurian legend. And the way that it's written is really weird compared to how it's written now. But the way that they write it is so interesting. And it, it causes you to want to read more because it's engaged with the reader. So it has to have a relationship with the reader and almost know what the reader wants to see and what to, what to have happen next. 
and it has to cause intrigue. It has to get a ball rolling. And you can see terrible composition as a ball that doesn't move. And you had to like push it, push it like a boulder, like Sisyphus, you know, and you're suffering the whole way through. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I just recorded a, a podcast with my fancy, uh, fiance about the myth of Sisyphus by Albert uh, Camus. Um, so for those of you who are listening to this, it'll, this will come out before. So check that out. Uh, but no, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Really, actually, I think I agree with everything that you said there. Uh, I do think that there's a plethora of indies who, uh, I'll be a little softer, which is unusual um, for me as, as a person, really. But I, I think that we have the way that I worded it to um, Torin and Amaya on the previous writing cast. I think we may have ceded, surrendered, like high quality literary prose to a bunch of pretentious academics and have forsaken it because we associate it with them. But I think that's a huge mistake. It's like, why, why would we, why would we give, because one, they, they don't even, Amaya pointed out, they don't even do it. Like what they do is they, um, they pretend that some form of stripped down minimalism is artistic and just, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, I put a paint splatter on the wall that, yeah, and I, yeah. Yeah. You just like, I just, uh, someone said this to me and not to me in, t in a class when I was in grad school, cause I do have a, a master's in creative writing. So I got to see a lot of this. Um, and he's like, well, I just, <laughs> you know, I just don't like to, to put too much in the description. I just let the, you know, the word describe itself. And we saw the problem right there. They were talking about the author and what the author wants to do. It's like, you have a job to do as an author. You have to make sure that the reader wants to read it. If you say, Oh well, I have a restaurant, but I don't want to put any effort into making the t the food taste good. It's like congratulations, you're not going to get any customers coming through the door at all. Yeah, I don't like to put sauce on my spaghetti that I serve to my customers. It's like the spaghetti to speak for itself, right? It tastes for itself. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what that's like, right? Like yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah, like we're we're not going to to cook the steak. We're just going to allow the steak to taste on its on its own. I'll, no I'll give salt. it to them raw. Let's no, see if they cook it at their own. Yeah, no, no fire. It doesn't need fire. See, <laughs> fire is just the pretense of cavemen who like all that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, we can kind of see we're getting there. I actually think there's a lot to this. Um, I brought up his book a few times, and I like the guy. So uh, I'm more familiar with Shad M. Brooks. He's got a massive. You, everyone knows about him, especially because of that stupid controversy lately. I don't care about that. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So his book, Shadow of a Conqueror. Um, I've, criti I've critiqued it roundabouts here and there. I actually don't, I think people are a little too harsh on him, uh, partly because I kind of think Shad is autistic and it, as, uh, and that's okay. Cause I've, I've got, no, I, I mean that all, all, all kindness, right? Because I've got autistic friends or whatever, but when I read it, what I realize, <laughs> it is kind of funny, Sorry, but when I recognize, no, 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 it's, it's funny. What I recognize though, is like the problems that his book has, they're not, content related actually none of them are content related like the conceit are all, is all fine it's the execution it's how he wrote his piece together uh that here's here's a key example right so there's a scene where he and the female lead go and run around and they're acting like superheroes and they're fighting crime or whatever and then shad has this breakdown of the the proportions of crimes that they stopped and it's like uh some ridiculous 
number of like sexual assaults were stopped. And then also you notice that sexual assault happens in the book a whole bunch, like a whole lot, like a whole lot, like it sticks out. Like how many times are you going to like show us someone being sexually assaulted in this, you know, uh, fantasy uh, adventure uh, Shad? And then I realized, but I realized when I read the superhero fighting scene is I know why that happened. I guarantee you, I guarantee you Shad looked up crime statistics and then he said, okay, what's representative of the like the, the frequency of crimes that would be committed? And then he just represented that in his novel. Now, you might say, well, that's good, right? That's realistic, but that's not artistic, right? That's not taking into account. No, Shad, look, you have to decide how you're going to describe these things so they remain emotionally effective, right? It's why a commercial, when they're saying, please donate to these starving children in Africa, they show you one kid. <laughs> they don't show you a thousand kids because if they showed you a picture of a thousand kids, it doesn't make you feel as strongly about it. It feels... You can comprehend it, would... it. There's no personalization to it. Yeah, and so right there what that says is there's a way to compose a piece so that it evokes the emotions in us more readily, right, than it otherwise would. Um, I bring up quite a lot, uh, let's say, like, uh, you know, I mentioned Cormac McCarthy. I've talked about, like, The Last Unicorn, who I actually can't remember the author's name, which is terrible. But that book is fantastic because both uh, in Blood Meridian or The Road, um, No Country for Old Men was okay, but there's something about it that pissed me off, like, toward the end, and then I, like, <laughs> rage quit the book but otherwise the book is yeah. good uh uh so i have not seen the film actually for that either uh but the the point being and that there's a certain of art you know if you haven't seen my uh my previous podcast listeners go check that out in terms of style because that's really about composition there's a way that you can write so that your your writing can be there's a, there's a number of ways you can do this right it can be kind of musical or lyrical writing where you make use of meter and rhyme so that it's just there's pleasant a rhythm, there's a beat to it yeah that's one way but you don't have to do it that way like uh what you could do is something that i have an example of mccarthy doing where he uses raw discursion right so it's he's literally describing something in almost completely plain language uh, but the way that he goes about it fits the style of the piece and that you mentioned tone the tone of the scene so the atmosphere is set for that particular scene and it fits the whole tone of the book uh let's see evaluations yeah it's right here so let me see i've got a particular example essay that i always like to pull up because it's got a nice uh, a bunch of really nice quotes okay so this is from blood marine i'm just gonna I'm just going to read this really shortly. Blanton opened the package and let the paper fall to the dirt. In his hand, he held a long-barreled, six-shot Colt patent revolver. It was a huge sidearm meant for dragoons, and it carried in its long cylinders a rifle's charge and weighed close to five pounds loaded. These pistols would drive the half-ounce conical ball through six inches of hardwood, and there were four dozen of them in the case. Now it's just a kind of a really, well, I'm about to call it a plain description of a, of a case of guns, but there's a number of things stylistically that McCarthy did here that gives this description a lot of weight that really fits the tone, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of 
either simple or compound sentences, or the sentences that are longer or almost run-on sentences, um, just compounded with conjunctions. And everything is describing the physicality of the gun. So he's focusing in on this massive object. He's almost making it seem huge because of how long he's taking in describing each piece of this huge uh, cult. It's a Walker cult is what it is, right? Yeah, um, he's giving it um, importance, especially like a focus for that. You know, a paragraph is like a focus. Like if you're going to spend a paragraph on something, you, you're telling the reader to focus on that one. It's not like a little aside. And he also included the history and like what it's used for. It's like, all right, now I know this gun is used for a war. Something's going to happen. You get inc- you get excited about that. You get intrigued. Yeah, and it, there are a bunch. There's those are composition elements for for the listeners, right? Like mm-hmm. this is when you because you could you could have just said it was a uh, you know Walker Colt chambered in you know forty four forty four. We wouldn't call it a magnum back then, but like uh, you know forty four conical well, you ball. Just say he pulled out a gun. Yeah, or, or that, and it would lose all its profundity. That, that's, profundity the, that, that, that's, the, that's a subject. It's a gun. Okay, he pulled out the gun. That's the action. That's the object that he's pulling out. You get the idea. But then all the extra stuff he added brought in all the flavor. Like we're saying, you know, this is the sauce, and this is the salt into the mix. Yeah, and what was it? There, there, was, a, there was an initial note that i wanted to to touch on there and i've lost it so we will we'll have to I apologize <laughs> no 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 it, it, it's i try so hard not to interrupt and then the, the one time i do <laughs> no it's super funny i'm sure it'll come back to me well one thing i do want to mention uh before we're out of, out of time in terms of um composition is this idea of music right so um you might have heard peterson talk about this that music is the purest art form um, mm-hmm. and he got this from Nietzsche and Nietzsche thought, oh, Nietzsche got it from Richard Wagner. Um, now the reason why we would think this is that music in this weird way does not reference anything, right? Like the music will make you feel certain things, but you'll notice that sometimes, and sometimes it might emulate a particular sound, but a lot of the time it doesn't. And you can, you can like play a tone that is sadness and everyone thinks it's sadness, but it doesn't like Probably sadness doesn't. Yeah. yeah, but it's not like it sounds like crying or anything like that. It's it doesn't right? like someone's playing a sad tune on a violin. It doesn't sound like someone's crying. But at the same time, everyone feels like, ooh, I can feel that inside. And so you can have uh, a horror, you can have humor, you can have all these emotions, like especially in humor with cartoons, like, you know, you have wacky sound effects and you, know, you can understand that this is supposed to be wacky. You're not going to see it as serious. Yeah, and, and why am I bringing that up with music? Well, I actually think how you compose your sentences does the same thing in a real sense, right? Like there is a mm-hmm. there. It's almost like the way the sentence is constructed, the way that it comes off to the reader, particularly particularly if they read it aloud. Um, I think it might even convey, I don't know if it's like a waveform or what it is physiologically, but very clearly there is some deep connection to whatever music is, whatever that particular waveform of sound is and how it affects one emotionally. It's part of the vibrations. Well, it must be, right? Because it's that that's what sound is. 
uh, the and I think that how it attaches to um like uh, animal sounds and like nature sounds. Like we have sounds like a flute that sounds like a bird, and we'll be like, okay, that's a pleasant sound to us, unless it's a very harsh bird, like a on a toucan or something, whatever those cockatoos. <laughs> then that'll, that'll yeah. be like a tuba going like all full blast. So there, there's something deep there as well, and mm-hmm. you know, for for the listeners, because we're we are running low on time. Uh, very low in time, actually. I, I do want to, to, to we'll wrap up um, our content composition side of things. So on our content side, we talked about the archetypes. We talked about human flourishing. There's a moral or a theme or a thesis or a lesson, something that you get out of the work, maybe not immediately, maybe down your life, but objectively good prose objective, and objectively good story Uh facilitates that path to eudaimonia in you in some way, shape, or form. Um, and in terms of composition, good composition facilitates that the delivery of that eudaimonic message, right? It helps the, the, the content get into you and get you interested in it so that it's actually both effective and affective, right? Effective in that it works to fulfill the telos of the fiction, but affective in that it actually gets you to feel what you need to feel to be interested, to be engaged with the work. Um, and actually, that is that is a pretty, pretty good way to wrap that up. So anything else you want to uh, pitch out to the readers before we do our wrap up here, Irwin? Um, let's see. Only thing I want to wrap up with is um, when you at the very end you said feel. I would say feel against your own will because your body is going to cause you to feel it, and not just your body, but I also want to extend it to your mind and your spirit. But you can't quite convince people that the mind and spirit are uh uh important at the very beginning. You have to start with body. So first body, and then you also have to realize the mind is involved and the spirit is involved. Yeah, where we are integrated beings. All right, friends, fellow philosophers, thank you for joining us. Before you depart, make sure you check out wildoutlet.com. Check out my Kickstarter campaign, my editing service, the Wild Isle Style Guide, my fiction that's available on my website, as well as essays. Go check out my thing on the Barbie movie. It's awesome. Erwin, remind everyone before we leave, where can they find you and your stuff? You can find more of my stuff on my YouTube channel, Urban Blackthorn, or you can go to my subreddit, RTDLH, to find all my writings. I go into a lot of alchemy. I also talk about media. And yeah. Man, well, thank you for coming on. This has actually been uh, quite a lot of fun. I enjoyed this podcast a lot, and I hope you listeners did too. All right, without further ado, guys, we will see you next time.